This episode of Creativity in Captivity is sponsored by the Curtis Theater in Brea, California. Presenting Dawn Reed's The Never Too Late Show on Saturday, May 11th. Tickets are available at the Curtis Theater website. Get ready for insight and inspiration on the creative process from an array of artists, writers, and visionaries on May 9th, when Season 7 of Creativity in Captivity kicks off. In the meantime, please enjoy over 150 episodes hosted by Pat Hazel with a stable of creative guests in our listening lounge at creativityincaptivity.fun. This is Creativity in Captivity. I'm Pat Hazel. Today I visit with an international storyteller, screenwriter, and producer who is also the author of the book Crazy Screenwriting Secrets. Waco wrote and produced the film 100 Days, and he shares the importance of comfort food in Eastern culture, how much fear impacts the stories he tells, and why he has an affection for the movie Rain Man. Coming up, my chat with writer Waco Lin in Taipei, who describes himself as simply old fashions and black coffee. Grab a cup of one or the other and join us. That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free. You're captive to a mystery, the curse of creativity. La, la, la. Thanks, Pat, for the great intro. You're welcome. I'm right off. I want to know what is it about an old fashioned that speaks to you? I like it when it strikes right to the core. Not too much sweetener, none of the cocktail mixes, just enough right. whiskey that hits it. So this is my night drink. Black coffees are my day drinks. I was wondering if that was a morning, like your jump start. <laughs> it just depends if it's late night into the morning. So then the black yeah. coffee transitions it over. And maybe I'll let our listener know that I'm here in Austin, but I'm talking to you in Taipei. Yeah. This is amazing about technology. For all of the Zoom fatigue people have in the world, this kind of a convenience is an extraordinary opportunity for creative people to connect. Yeah, absolutely. I was born in Taipei. I immigrated to the States when I was eight years old. And it's great to be back to the country of my birth. And they really have the kind of pandemic situation really controlled really nicely. So life is super normal, production in full swing. But most of all, you know, my dad is here. My sister's here. My brother's here. They live here. And it's been really been great to go to the origin, to the source. I know from conversations with you and reading some of your posts that in Eastern cultures, Food is a way to express love. Yes. That it's yes. a really important part of the family tradition. Tell me what dishes or meals represent comfort food for you. Wow. That's a great question. Comfort food is this fantastic pork ball soup that my mother used to make. I guess if you want to make it parallel to a Western kind of a chicken noodle soup, you know, okay. that kind of comfort food. And it's just great on any time of the day. And it just reminds me, my mom, you know, my mom passed away 14 years ago. I absolutely connected to her and the country. And basically, whenever I feel sick in a down mood, she would make that bowl of soup for me. And that just makes everything all fantastic. And going back to the Eastern culture, the Taiwanese and Chinese culture, the way we say hello, we don't say just hello. When we greet somebody, we say, have you eaten? Mm. It's all about connecting through food, caring about your nourishment. Let's say if you're really struggling financially, if you're struggling, whatever in life, you would never skimp out on food. You never do the whole ramen. Oh, I'm so poor and broke. I'll just go eat ramen. You would actually put all the money in food, good quality food. That surpasses before clothes, before going mm -hmm. out, before drinks, before anything. I did see that you had passed a tea shop the other day that had the Chinese characters that represented your mom's name on it. It is a pain that's always in, in, in my heart. And my mom passed away 14 years ago. But it feels like 14 minutes ago, really. Right. So that afternoon, I was just wandering around. And it's so crazy, Pat. I'm just wandering around, just thinking about my mom. Obviously, you know, a lot of memories from childhood because I walked these exact same streets, exact same alleys with my mom as a kid. Right? It's a small island. We're like, think of like a Hawaii, like an outer, not the main, you know, kind of Honolulu area. But it's kind of outskirts. It's an island culture. So it's not big. So walking through it, I just walked literally past a tea shop and had my mom's name on it, her Chinese name. I understand the translation of her Chinese name is Beautiful Spring. And so I just can't imagine coming to that at this moment in the season and with her on your mind, what a powerful sort of emotional impact that is. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I stood there and I just looked at the name and I couldn't believe it. I mean, a tea that's named after my mom in a way. And it's literally on a sign. 
So it's a sign, really. And right. obviously mm. I got the tea, cost a dollar, and I drank it and just really am thinking of my mom. Again, going back to the food and memory. That's what everything is about, especially, I think a lot of cultures, food and memory are connected, but especially in the Taiwanese and Chinese culture is absolutely intricated. Well, and as a writer and producer, you write screenplays and plays. And I know one of your recent pieces was the Chinese romance film, A Hundred Days. I did get a chance to watch that. The premise in it is this guy who's kind of uh, has had a busy, is it a Western life? And he now has to find a girl to marry to in order to put his mother at peace. Yeah. Was that based on part of your early life or tell me a little bit about that? Oh my God, absolutely. Hey, you're great. <laughs> you saw the movie. Thanks for watching the movie, by the way. It's yeah. a great movie. It's oh. beautifully done. And I know that you focus on global stories, but this is at the heart. It's just a human story and a family story. It's really universal. Yeah. Oh, thanks, Pat. Absolutely. was inspired by my mom. So this is a tradition in Taiwan. It's a true tradition. If a parent passes before their child is married, the child has 100 days to get married in order for the spirit of the parent to witness the marriage, because mm. especially in Taiwanese culture, and I think in all cultures, I don't know, as a parent, you feel like your job is done when your child is married, because then you feel like now the family, they have established a family, your job is done, and you could go at peace. So the idea is when a parent passes uh, away in Taiwan, their spirit is around for 100 days. And that's why the time lock, right? <laughs> the time lock to get married within uh, 100 days or the tradition mandates you to get, then you could only marry after three years. I don't know where the three years come from, but that's, <laughs> right. that's the reason. There's a little phalange or exactly. some legal clause. A legal clause, well, you're not getting married forever, <laughs> then you could be, never be at peace. So there's got to be a way out somewhere. When my mom was sick, I wasn't married. I was a single bachelor as, as much as you can be. I wasn't going to get out and get married in 100 days. I understood the tradition, really. I mean, I didn't know. It was a new tradition. But I knew that my mom, I'm the youngest of four kids. So all my other three older siblings, they're all married. Or some have kids. I was the one that she, she's, a comp, she's gotten everything she wanted in life. But the one thing that she was not at peace with, not at peace with in terms of like she wished she could be around for, was to see me married and see my children. And I would say... She was quite at peace with everything, and this was the only part. Mm -hmm. And that stayed with me, in, in a way. So then, obviously, the inspiration came to tell this story. I grew up pretty much in the States since I was eight. And I've been teaching screenwriting at a university level for about 18 years, and it worked writing screenplays in the kind of American Hollywood system. And she just always like, oh, if you ever have an opportunity, I hope one day you will make a, a film in the Chinese language one day. Mm. Because my mom's English is very limited. So in a way, uh, I made the movie as something for my mom. Yeah, because I noticed it was subtitled. The What I watched, the story moment that's so critical here is that emotional, as the screenwriter, your emotional connection to your mom, both on the legacy of the marriage tradition mm -hmm. and the idea of doing it in a way that would honor her. Yes, absolutely. It was really a, a way for me to connect with her on that level. And if anything, that film will always represent that moment in my life, and then it's connected, it's in Taiwan, and it's, it's yeah. So that leads me to something that I know you probably have a perspective on, and that's the importance of emotion in storytelling. Yeah. And how critical that is to an effective filmmaking process. Yeah. Do you want to speak to that sure. for somebody who maybe isn't a writer? Yeah, absolutely. People always talk about voice. What is that voice? And I think people define it differently. You read a script and like, wow, that really stood out, you know, rather it being comedy, I guess, for you know, funny or heart-wrenching or moving. So how do you start? How do you start cultivating your voice? You know, what is that voice that, that's you? For me, I approach it. Emotion, obviously, is such a big gamut of such a wide range of emotions. I like to start with fear. And because I believe we tell stories in some ways to overcome our fears, right? And I think mm -hmm. from the classics, from the mythologies, it's to explore the unknown. But for me, it's that fear. And it's funny, I'll tie this right back to 100 Days and, and to my relationship with my mom. I remember as a kid, I would wake up from nightmares, dreams, where I would, the dream would be very similar. And I would have these recurring ones where I'd be sitting in the back of a car and the knowledge that mom had passed. I had this fear and I wake up in tears and my mom said, what's wrong? What's wrong? And I go, oh no, I just, I, I dreamt that you, you were gone. I'm so afraid, so afraid. Mm. And I felt bad. And she goes, no, by you dreaming that, that means you want me to live for a very long time. And that brought a certain amount of comfort. And of course, yeah. as I grew into adulthood, that fear 
of having of losing my mom came true. Oh my God, you know? So then through, in a way, <laughs> through creating this movie, through storytelling this, through that, I was able to mm-hmm. feel comfort again. I felt like she's with me as I was doing the story because it was something that's happened. I wish her to live a long time, but her spirit is with me. So the authenticity, I think, is really real. And honestly, right now, Every project I take on, I will find a fear of the character that's very active in my heart that I emotionally is there. So I'm not creating and making up fears. Mm-hmm. It has to be something that's authentic. So writing the emotions you know rather than writing what you know, because then that's going to be, oh, that's going to drive. You have format, you have structure, all that kind of stuff, right? That's everyone could do those crafts. But what's going to make it personally unique to you is that the moment of your fear and authenticity of your emotions, that's going to be the engine and fuel for your story narrative. Right. I'm here to tell you that your mother was also right because by making this film, she does live on forever in the legacy of your storytelling. She's still around yeah. and she wouldn't be had you not done that. So she was right in telling you also that she would be here a long time too. Oh, I love right? that. Thank you, Pat. But I read in your book that you think that fear itself keeps us from doing our best writing. Mm. Yes. There's other right? fear. <laughs> Right. Yeah. And so can you explain the thoughts on that, which is sort of the crippling sense that maybe we're not enough or maybe if we expose ourselves too much or for somebody who has any creative inspiration or in, or intention rather uh, as a writer, fear is riding in your sidecar. Right. Absolutely. I'm surprised. And because I was afraid. So before I would say I really came into my creative voice after the loss of my mom, if you will, even though I've already worked professionally in the industry I was surprised, actually, you know, through working with students or working with other writers, people are afraid to show their vulnerability. They're afraid because no one wants to trigger stuff. You don't want to trigger that pain. But I feel that will stunt the authenticity. It will stunt the soul of your story. It will stunt. And I'm not talking about just a drama if you're just writing a drama writer. I'm talking about comedy, right? Comedy comes from the heart. The best comedies, Pat, you know? And I, I checked out your shows, and it's about memories, about childhood, using comedy to feel those things too, but it's really from the heart. And if you're not open and vulnerable to it, which is natural, it takes time. You have to be ready for it. But I feel like that will stunt the creativity if you're not opening up to vulnerability, to be open with that. If you try to modify the writing to become the hero of the moment when you weren't, there's just something false about it. Vulnerability is a superpower. It is. And most people don't realize it. They're afraid it's a weakness and that they'll get to you if they know it. But it's exactly the opposite. Oh, you hit it right Right on the right? nail. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I had a hard time because I did come from comedy writing where it was how many jokes per square inch. Pound for pound, I want this to be funny every page. More jokes, more jokes. And it was much later in my life and it, a more recent piece that I was writing where I was exploring in a sh- show called My Permanent Record, everything I did wrong, everybody I lied to, anytime I did something. And sometimes... It was hard to write, even if I wasn't going to show it to anybody, because I'd go, oh, I really don't look very good here. But it was through that exploration that I realized I'm just a mirror to all human beings who do something, self-sabotage, whatever. It's why people love a country song with a breakup in it, if they know what that pain feels like. That is so brave of you to do so. And that's another thing. We wish we had the courage that our protagonists have, really. Because we're afraid to show the vulnerability. Every character has flaws. That's the typical story construction. Your protagonists have a flaw. But that is really true. You need, and you need to be authentic with that vulnerability. And that's the way you need to channel that. You mentioned the protagonist. I know that you do a little backstory for protagonists and antagonists that you feel like it's important for the writer to understand, even if it doesn't show up in the story, you want to know the depth of those characters. So tell me a little bit about what you advise for people to tee that up if they're going to start writing a story. Yeah, absolutely. Protagonists, I think oftentimes people start developing a character of your story. They're thinking like, I'm going to do a whole biography about that person. That's just too much. Right? I mean, right. right? you don't need to do everything that's happened to them up to that point. But I feel like if in a half a page you can articulate what are the significant moments in that character's life, loss, joy, whatever that is, that defines and pivots. I know losing my mom 
that pivoted not only my personal life, that pivoted my entire relationship with people. It absolutely thwarted my life. In a way, that became who I am today. So they need to identify those kind of moments that happens before. Why are we entering the character story at this moment in that person's life? And I think to articulate those emotional moments versus literally what happened. Yes, you have situations, but what is the heart of it? As much as I can talk about, look, signs and lamps, right? You look at our Jodie Foster's character. She lost her dad. That's her driving thing throughout the whole aspect of it. So as cliche as it may sound, I'm I'm always all about cliches are cliches because they work. Because these losses are universally felt. Even in Rain Man, that's my favorite movie of all time. It's a loss of the dad. It's this two separate movie, but they drive the emotional, the, the emotional fuel of it. So to identify those things. And for the antagonist, maybe they may not appear as many times in Two to Story, but you should always create your antagonist, who's basically the main character that's going up against your protagonist. You need to really figure out if you're to do an origin story of that antagonist, if you were to tell a story from that character's perspective, like their own story, what would that look like? People always think antagonists are the, well, the negative kind of connotation to it. No, they just happen to be in a position. What they want to achieve, what they need, what they hope for are against the perspective of the story. If you look at a musical like Wicked, it's the point of view of the witch. Yes. She's... She becomes a witch by the way society treats her because she's green. And you can absolutely empathize with how she became who she was and what she wanted in life. In reading your book, Crazy Screenwriting Secrets, I noticed it has a feel like a menu or a recipe book. The vibe was like a multicultural meal being served. In general, did you feel like that was a more accessible way for people to understand or rather digest the content? You know, originally I wanted to make this like a cookbook for stories, but the publisher's Uh like, no, they'd be like in the cookbook section. People would be confused what this is. I really feel we consume stories by how we eat. And that's how I feel that culturally, different cultures eat differently. So different cultures, if you look at different countries, the way they tell their stories, that may work super well in that country, but may not cross over as well in other countries because we all eat differently. But now you ask about, well, how come Hollywood movies, quote unquote, which I don't like to say Hollywood movies. I like to call Hollywood movies pretty much like global movies. The entire world, I mean, Pat, you've done extensive travel in your life. Whenever you go to a different country, you know, what's fascinating to me is like the American chain restaurants are everywhere. And when I'm just talking about McDonald's, I'm talking about TGI Friday. I feel like every country, there's a TGI Friday somewhere, right? Uh, so that uh. kind of, I didn't make a point trying to eat at every TGI Friday as possible. No, <laughs> I mean, every, everyone's familiar with the quote unquote, the three course meal, the Western way, the kind of American uh. serving of that presentation of the meal. So, and that's why I thought it was accessible in that way to help everyone understand that I'm not saying the American structure, the narrative structure, or the global, it's not the right structure per se, right? Right. It's not the perfect structure. It's simply the structure, the story structure that the entire world is used to because American films for the last hundred years has never stopped. We've never stopped producing content versus the other countries in the world through whatever political, whatever situational, social unrest, whatever it is, is a stop and go, stop and go industry. So the only constant feeder of narrative films are from America. So that's right. an area structure that we've come to become used to. So that's what I like to talk about food. Yeah. So for me, it's like, if you just kind of structure it in a way that's a three-course meal presentation, which is just beginning, middle, and end, right? If you present it in that way where everything is organic and focusing on the main course, everything tends to be supporting that main course, that main entree. Yeah. So it's to focus on that one thing. Whereas, you know, if you go to a Chinese banquet, culturally, we just like to eat whatever we feel like at that any given moment. So <laughs> the entree would be like 10 dishes and you're just eating all out of order. They're still authentic, great, delicious food, but we're eating them out of order like a buffet, I guess, right? You know, yeah. in, in that sense. But the idea is you can still have the authenticity of your perspective, your lived experience, your culture. But if you present it in a way that the folks are used to in terms of the, a wider reach of audience, you could have something and still maintain the authenticity of what you have to say, what you have to cook, to, to make. Well, I love that you use the word presentation because in many ways, it's what you're presenting. If it's a story, if it's a meal, if it's something, it's that focus or that meal allows us to come together, even if we have differences, political differences, social differences, economic differences, we all can say, let's sit at the table and break bread. What unfolds from it and where arguments happen and when your uncle gives you the crazy look from his eye, whatever, that's where the drama, that's when it becomes dramatized. To me, writing is listening. Yes. 
when you are observing a family meal, when you're observing a crisis, when you're at an airport and something happens, how are people responding? What are they choosing? There was a time in North Hollywood that I played softball with many comedians and celebrities. And, you know, it was the same every week. But one week, there was a pit bull attack right behind home base. And that dog came from center field, and we saw it coming, and it went for another dog. And how did everybody react? Some people clung on the fence. Other people tried to attack the dog owner. That's the moment of crisis. That's why I tell the story right now. All of these people, all these characters, you know, are acting differently. They're responding to something. What's going to happen? It was the story unfolded a few days later that it was a pit bull that belonged to a drug dealer that they've been trying to catch in this park. And, you know, like it was like, oh my gosh, we were all part of an action movie. Wow. It is being at that moment that if you are listening, if you are a storyteller, you're seeing all those perspectives, all those points of view, all your characters. How are they mirroring each other? How are they shadowing each other? What a inexperienced screenwriter is having the same argument for their point with all characters, as opposed to putting them in conflict with each other. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. And how people react to those, like to call the, the situation, the crazy situation, the out of the norm situation, and how they react to each other and those, the foundation of the characters and the interactions, absolutely. Well, let me tap into your teacher brain for a few minutes. <laughs> <Sure>. because <laughs> No, because I think you have a lot to share. Some of it may even be basic. But I'd love to hear from you what you think might make an effective pitch. You know, going back, to, for example, that anecdote you just told about the pit bull, that's a situation. That is the crazy situation, what the movie is. To break it down easily, it's you're pitching the trailer of your script. Trailers, they set up pretty much the first act of the movie. So you basically give an adjective to the protagonist, what they do, what this insane or crazy out of the norm situation that they encounter, and then what they do to, to resolve it and then maybe indicate what obstacle they may have. So I know this sounds very like, oh my God, it's kind of like <laughs> to think about theory or something like that, but it's pretty simple. And that's all those kind of elements So watch a trailer and see what they have to do. But the most important thing I think is the, the situation. And when I say crazy, I just, I just say that to make you think outside of it because a situation may be simply something that's out of the norm. For example, I like the example I love to give is Stand and Deliver. I'm not sure if you've seen that movie in Los Angeles about this mostly Latinx community who is poor. And then they're basically, they have this teacher who inspires them, who's a Latinx teacher who inspires them to pass the calculus test, right? To pass the calculus test to get college credit. That doesn't seem like the most enticing, crazy logline ever. But you know what? For those characters in that environment, that's a crazy situation. Big Are obstacle you, to cope. Big yeah. obstacle. This is a situation we never, we barely passed high school. We drop out of high school. And now you want a teacher to basically push these students to reach their fullest potential and pass a calculus test that no one in the world would ever think they would pass it. And even after they passed it, they said you're cheating. They had to retake it again because they wouldn't believe it. Now that is a crazy situation. So when you think about crazy situation, it doesn't mean like, oh my God, it has to be this big alien invasion. But it is the crazy situation to the characters and the community where they come from. Well, the importance of small things. I remember in our early days on Seinfeld, there was an episode where Larry David had a story about a guy's favorite jacket. And the network was like, that's nothing. There's no stakes. What, what do we care about that jacket? It's what that jacket means to him. Mm -hmm. So if that was his dad's jacket or if that was the jacket he first got laid in or we can make that his pot of gold and if he loses it, he loses his strength. We can figure out a way to do that. So it's not just that it's a jacket. And I think that goes for any number of things is what importance do we give a thing? Yeah. Oh, God, What's worth so fighting good. for? Yes, Absolutely. Do we have to replace this with some expensive car? I don't want to tell that story again. Right. I want to tell a personal story. Yeah, you know, I keep going back to Rayman as to me, one of the almost near perfect movie in my mind is a narrative structure film. Tom Cruise plays a character named Charlie Babbitt, where basically he gets screwed up his father's inheritance. It's given to a trust, which is basically, we find out it's basically left to his autistic brother he never knew he had. What does Charlie Babbitt get left with? He gets left this, with this car. This exotic car back, you know, in the 50, I think the 60s or 50s car. And it was basically the car that broke up Charlie Babbitt and his father's relationship when he was 15 years old. When basically he took the car for a spin, 
The father reported it was stolen. Now his kid stole it, left him in jail for two days, and he ran away from home. The whole movie is him driving in that car, <laughs> taking Rayman, which is played by Dustin Hoffman, cross country in the car that broke up his relationship with his father and still hated the father, even though he's passed away. So for me, that's the object. That's just a car. That's an exotic little old car that really doesn't have any financial value to it. But like you said, personally, it connects it with it. So absolutely, I think objects are insanely important to, to a character. I think any story, whether it be comedy or drama or action genre piece, I think the, an, an object and what it means to that character is absolutely crucial. It was because the audience, we could see it too. Instead of feeling like we can't see the internal, but we could see the object and how that translates to an external kind of emotional bond to whatever the character's yeah. feeling. Well, having so many writing students, what do you find in the beginning? It's sort of just basics, but are the best tips or best practices that you could talk about, like when they're formatting a script? Like I find that the mechanics of telling a story, if you're at a dinner table, you don't have to worry about where do I put the action? What does the character do? Particularly, what does a parenthetical mean? Like, how often should I do that? So parentheticals, I think people often try to direct the actors and it goes on and really long sometimes, right? And, or they get direct, like, I say this angrily or madly or happily. You're basically giving, it's like, that's more of lazy writing in a way. And even Stephen King says no adverbs. And that means no adverbs to describe how you deliver. But the parenthetical should only be used for action of what the character is doing that may indicate how they're feeling. If you did your dialogue work well, if you set the scene well, the way it's delivered, in your it's going to come across. The actor reading it is going to read out loud because the dialogue is formed so well and give them a specific action. If the character is nervous, don't say nervously in parentheticals, like it's scratching the skin, it's picking their nails. Whatever they do is a nervous gesture to indicate that. So parenthetical mm. should always be an action verb to make it the most effective way because then it just becomes repetitive and somewhat annoying on the page if you're just indicating every adverb on how they should be delivering those lines. Most of the actors are insulted by them. Sometimes you have to give them the idea that they're flirting even though they're about to murder them. Do you know what right, I mean? Right, right. If they're playing against something, it's like, I better give them a clue. But aside from that, I think actors have a tendency to surprise writers at how much they can pull out of that content. Yeah. And sometimes just the, even the word way you do it, like right flirts, or, you know, we direct actors when actors, what's my motivation? I'm there to hurt them. I'm there to flirt with them. I'm there to love them. I'm there to, you know, whatever that verb is versus like trying to describe the context of what's going on, right? Also, in good parentheticals, I think people overblock too much to try to give the actors all the blockings, like the director and the actor. If you give the dialogue and give them like an action, like a one action, that's enough. They can do all the rest. You don't have to kind of micro-block every single thing. Takes two steps to the left. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Unless it's a critical action that, you know, falls, you know, breaks his head against a coffee table or something like that. Then, yeah, that's an, an important narrative decision. But if you're like, yeah, two blocks to the left, opens the door, reaches off for the beat. I mean, don't beat by beat, just assume those things. That'll create less black ink on the page too, which will make the read better because you have more blockings like going, this is not really important to the story. And then you just get convoluted in that, that respect. For the modern generation, I kind of say like, you know, screenwriting is almost like Twitter. You can always cut, right? Remember the Twitter limitations and then they expanded the word limitations. Back, you know, you tweet something, you write a whole bunch and then you're in a red and you go back and you fine tune in and make it concise. In a way, that's what I think screenwriting is. Like you could, you could blot it out and then, but go back and, and fine tune it. And, and make each word concise, make each word count, make as if each word costs money. Then you'll be really careful in, in what word you choose. Yeah. I like that. And you talked about too much black ink on the page. When there's a density to a page with action and thought, it's like reading a book and it doesn't flow necessarily in terms of cinematically wanting people to see pictures. Right. I remember reading William Goldman's Butch Cassidy, Sundance Kid. And he talked about... It had to race like the horses race. It literally had to be that way every page yes. to have adrenaline yeah. in it. And you didn't want to stop reading it. Yeah. And sometimes it's almost just a matter of breaking up the paragraphs too. So, you know, in a movie, when you're seeing certain action, we're cutting, right? On a screen, it's being cut to a different place. So if you can break up that blocks, I'm, don't get me wrong, if you're writing Sixth Sense or writing the psychological thriller, it is going to be a slower burn. 
but break up the paragraphs in these kind of important emotional or narrative beats that would just be easier on the eye too. Every scene is essentially a negotiation. Yes. I don't remember where I heard that. Somebody was telling me it made a lot more sense to me, both as an actor and as a writer, that what is being negotiated this scene that wasn't in the last one and isn't coming to the next one. And what do you need to get when you come out of this? What information? Are you trying to get the gun? Are you trying to find out where the money is hitting? Are you trying to get them to approve of you? Are you, Whatever it is, just that's the point. Just keep that tight and get go into that. And if you don't get what you want, where does that send you? Where do you have to go to get that thing? What's the MacGuffin that you're chasing in Rain Man that you mentioned? When Tom Cruise's character goes to the brother, he doesn't go to bond with the brother. The money is locked up in the trust that this dude has, and he doesn't want to fall into a relationship. He wants to get his fair share. It's the journey in the car where they become a team and where he realizes the importance of family. All of that comes despite what his intent is, what his thinks he's there for. I'm so glad you brought that up, Pat. And this is actually one of the mistakes a lot of uh, beginning screenwriters do is like they get so focused on the character, which is really important. But then they, what happens is they let the characters out of the structure. <laughs> we lose sight of those goals, which you need is so much. And this has to be take up so much screen time. So you mentioned his intention was to take the brother because his car business was failing. He needs that money to save his business. So the goal was, I need to get him to Los Angeles within seven days in order to get custody of Raymond so he can get the share of his inheritance to save his business. That was the entire driving force. Now, we don't really talk about that throughout most of the movie because the movie is about the getting to know the brother, finding family again, knowing about the father wasn't as a horrible father as he thought his father was through the love and the stories that he heard from Rayman and knowing that Rayman was an imaginary friend that he loved through all this journey. And all we had was every so often we'd get his staff member calling in, hey, your business is going down the tube. It's going down you know, deeper in the toilet and to escalate that. But the goal was never lost. And that's the key. We can't lose sight of that one goal. And it's usually very simple. It's yeah. that one goal. And, and so I'm glad you're, and that's the biggest mistake because Act two is really hard to write in my mind in a feature script because the setup is easy. I go to different coffee shops in LA. I write in coffee. I'm a coffee <laughs> shop writer. And you know, you go around, most people say, oh my gosh, have you written a full length screenplay before? They'll say, no, I have five screenplays, which are the first 25 pages of. They never finish because it's exciting to put down the characters and the situation. But then, then what? What's the one? How do we craft that spine, the narrative spine? And how do you do a good solid act two where you're propelling this crisis forward in a way that they have to overcome obstacles that are new when it's man against man and man against nature. It's a little bit easier to track that. Yeah. But when it's man against himself, like in a movie, like the color of money, people think it's a pool hustle movie and he's got to win the thing. No, he has to find himself. He's got to fight the demon inside him. Yes. And that's, what's very interesting is, Oh, why is this? happening. So the writer has to know that the audience doesn't, because that's where the tension is, is they want, they want to feel some relief, but they can't get there because the character himself is so self-sabotaging. Yeah, absolutely. You know? And how the journey comes across that. And those things, I think when a writer gets into it, because we're all human, we all have emotional experiences. We all dealt with different dynamics, different characters. I think those things will come into play but to set the structure of it, I think that's a challenging part. How do we follow that spine? I can share this little uh, thing, which I call like my outlining, unless I'm doing a treatment for you know a producer or something like that. But I like this outline. Just writers feel like they, they get lost in act two per se. What I like to do is what I call a, a one-page step outline. And what it is is each step represents three pages of your script or three minutes of the movie. So what happens is this, you do it in 12 point times new Roman font. Again, only you'll be seeing it. So you can, don't, don't <laughs> go cheat yourself, your right? Note. You're not cheating a teacher. <laughs> you're doing yourself, right? 12 point times new Roman font. What you do is you're literally summarizing what happens in those three minutes. So it's not a scene because, so you're forced to capture what happens in three minutes in that whatever, how many scenes they are in that one step out. And you can write in fragments. It's okay. So the idea is, it's the most boring document you'll probably read. It's not exciting in the scene that you have in your mind. But what happens is you're seeing what the basic plot spine. You can see if, hey, 
is that the antagonist not showing up for a while or no obstacles? Like, it's all smooth for like, if you have several right. pages of outline, you're like going nuts, like flipping through pages. You're, you're tracking all that. This is just like a one pager and it just shows you narrative and all the exciting scenes. You can expand upon that on your own, but you should always just have that one simple one pager so you can see the whole movie with a bird's eye view, literally on, on one glance. Yeah, it's an architectural blueprint. Mm-hmm. And if doing it on a page, like I've done it on a pad of a post-it notes where I write a step outline, I just stick them on the wall and then I go, oh, this one's in the wrong place. Like before I even put it on one page, I'm like, oh, no, wait a second. This person has to arrive before because they have the information. Yeah. I, if I don't do that, then I don't get this. And I will say, while you say it seems not important, it is literally the way you tailor the suit. Yes. If you have no plot points, if you have no moments that you know this leads to this, then it's the journey where it goes all over the place and you don't end up at the destination. So yes. it is definitely creating a road trip and saying, okay, we got to stop at this point and sleep. We have to do this next. We have to do that next. Now we can change it. We can go, oh, I can go this direction. I can go south to Kansas City and we can get ribs and then we can go up, right? But that's what you're looking at in a step outline. Yes. Is how to replan your route before, you, you know, if you don't do that, then you find yourself five days in Kansas City and you don't <laughs> right. get to the end of the movie. Oh, I found an antique store. Oh, now we're having ribs the second night again. This story doesn't need us to be having ribs two nights in a row. I love this food. You're making me hungry, Pat. <laughs> so the great thing about the step outline is my outlines change about 50% by the time I'm done with the script. But I think the step outline is not set in stone. It's an evolving document. But at least like you said, you have a sense of direction. You can discover great new routes and you go for that. Great new food along the way. You go for that. But the, what yeah. happens is so oftentimes writers get into the whole writing thing like, oh my God, I have a 3 a.m. stroke of genius and you're just writing off, you know, and throughout the outline and discovers great new thing and you start writing 20 pages and you realize, oh my God, you rinse off your, into, yourself into a corner. Well, how great would it be if you have that stroke of genius, you, you updated your step outline and see how that impacts what happened before and what ha- impacts what happens yeah. after. You work all that out and then go for it. Because what happens is, I think, when people are so eager to hit the pages, that's what we all want to do, we want to start writing pages, you get writer blocked because sometimes you may spend this amount of time fine-tuning this beautiful five scenes that you love and made you cry when you wrote it, but it doesn't fit the story. And what you end up doing is you just try to cram it in and it sticks out, even though it's a great scene by itself, but it doesn't fit the whole narrative. And that's the key, to not get writer blocked and not quit as a result of it. It gets harder when you fall in love with something that's out of place because you continue to take it on the ride. You always go, if you're going to take cake and ice cream to Vegas on a road trip, go, it's not going to make the trip. Eat it now or pitch it because at the end of this thing, you're just going to have a big soupy mess in the back of the seat of the car. But it's very, very hard to understand it. Now, here's something that I find humorous. I did read something about how you don't like when somebody puts untitled on their screenplay, (laughs) which I... I'm in complete agreement with you on. To me, every time I go to a museum and I look at a beautiful piece of art and then I look down and it says untitled art by whatever, I'm like, oh, give us a clue. You weren't feeling anything. You don't even want to call it the blue art. Like, it's so rude to me. So tell me about your take on untitling a script. Yeah, I just feel... You should always have a name and it could be a working title. It's something worse. When you, untitled just feels like you don't know what you're, you don't know what this is. But if you look at all the great titles of movies, they're very simple. So you can just have a really simple thing. So for me, I, I just feel like if you don't have a title for it, you don't have a specific focus of your movie. And Rain Man, I mean, if anything, give it to the, the name of your character. <laughs> just put that name. If you have right, to. Anything. If it's a character driven yeah. thing. Titanic. Braveheart, Gladiator. Hey, look, all the great movies, like, I think I did a list of all the Oscar winners in the last however many years. They're all one-word titles. So you don't have to come up with anything clever. Just have right. one-word title, and, and it'd be great. And I think it's something tangible, and you just have an attachment to it. That attachment to me is critical. I, I, I'll name it first because to me, it's like going to check on the baby in the crib. you got to call it something, and you have to say, i got to get home to it, and I need to pay attention to it. And I also love taglines. And I know that you subscribe to taglines. Yeah. I had a play. I think, you know, of the musical that I had called grounded for life. Yes. So the tagline for grounded for life was no supper, no parole. (laughs) 
And it says, it's a comedy. It says this person's been there a long time and yet their mom is still overbearing. Like it does give you clues. It give, tells you about the experience. Knowing that you had a thing for these, I've created a little game for us. Oh, wow. <laughs> it's the tagline game that doesn't exist. Oh, and I'm, I made it up as we go, but I'm going to name a tagline and I'm going to see if you can name the movie. Oh my okay? goodness. Okay. Now I'm starting off easy. So okay. if you disappoint me at the beginning, we, we may have to get a new contestant. But, I know. Uh, I know. We'll, we'll put, no, we'll no, put no, someone I else. I promise on. you. <laughs> okay. I, I promise you. I went for some that uh, everybody will go. Oh, I, I can guess that. Got it. Got it. First one, Houston, we have a problem. Wait, see? <laughs> okay, that's okay. Okay, okay. Oh, wait. I'm going to have to look it up on my computer now. No, no. Wait, no, wait. no. This is no. a Google-free zone. Oh, my God. I can't. I'm freezing on the title of the movie. Of course I know Houston, we have a problem. It's going to be a negative brown. You're going to have to tell me the title for this. It's Apollo 13. I knew Apollo 13, of course. No, I didn't invite you here to humiliate you. So. <laughs> no, I like it. That's good. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to go even easier. Like, okay. We're going to get you on board. All right. All right. Just when you thought it was safe to go back in the water. Jaws. Jaws 2. Jaws, Jaws 2. All <laughs> oh, right. The secret going back. Right, right, right. Got right. It. So that's what's interesting. In yep. that, to me, going back, back in the into water. Back into the water. Jaws 2. That's really right? good. See? They're telling you it's a sequel. That's elegant to me. Yes. All right. Very thematic, too. Yeah. Yes. In space, no one can hear you scream. Jeez, oh, I know exactly what that poster is, too. Um, Describe the poster. Describe. Wait. Is it space? Okay. In space. Any actors? Actors in it? I can give you Sigourney Weaver. Okay. Yeah, Aliens. Okay. I knew right, that. I'll give you, I even uh, know the poster. Yeah, Aliens. Yes. Yeah, I'll give you credit for it. Okay. okay. And it's a little older one, okay? So uh -huh. I don't want you to... Uh, I'll give you some context. The nearer they got to the treasure, the further they got from the law. Oh, that's a hard one. I really don't even recognize that It's one. hard, but this is what they used to do in the old days. They used to give you part of the title in the tag. Treasure of the Sierra Madre. Oh, wow. Very nice. Right. Okay. Yeah. There yeah, used yeah. to be a little bit more literal back in the day, but the interesting thing about taglines to me is the best ones and the worst ones are an eyelash apart. Uh-huh. You know what interesting. I mean? Interesting. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. Like there's some whimsy or there's, and then you kind of go, oh, that's cheesy, but that one is amazing. This is old, but I picked it because it's one of my favorites. So we discussed Rain Man being one of your favorites. So here's the tag. Okay. From the moment they met... It was murder. Oh, fatal attraction? No, older than that. Black oh. and white. Barbara Stanwyck, Fred McMurray, Edward G. Robinson. What? Double uh, indemnity. Double, double indemnity. indemnity. Oh, man. But hey, that could have been for a fatal attraction, you know, maybe. Yeah, it yeah, totally yeah, could have been. Yeah, 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 yeah. One of the things I love about movies like Double Indemnity, which was a Billy Wilder film, I love the... Film noir. I love the language. Yeah, like her I neck do. was like a runaway truck ramp. You know, oh, like they, I know. Oh, I love that. That's whatever, great. Yes, you know? yes, yes. I yeah. don't think that was one of the lines, yeah. but with gams like that, who couldn't take her as a client? You know, like <laughs> I love the fact you love taglines as much as I do, even though I suck at knowing <laughs> the titles. But taglines, I feel, not only is it great telling you about what the movie's about, but it's really the theme of the movie. It's usually very general, right? It's like, you know, American Beauty, look closer. It's very thematic stuff. So for me, if you come to the title, at least you know where you're focusing on, tangible. And then if you have the tagline, that gives you the theme. So I find that to be very helpful. Yeah. Yeah. And, and pretend it comes to plays and musicals. To me, you are trying to get a person to vote with their dollars to go to an event. You're trying right. to give them a clue, a, a strong clue. And so if you don't tell them those two things, if they aren't appealing to them and they're right. going to shell out $35, $50, whatever that kind of entertainment is, uh -huh. what's strange, and I feel like this is the obligation of the writer and marketer to give us a sense of the experience so that you want to shell the money out and say, I, that sounds fun. I'd like yeah. to do that. I want to have a dialogue about that topic. Because otherwise what happens when you do it untitled or you make it super vague or you don't have a good description is that it becomes the box office person's job. And then they call and they go, what's it about? I don't know. It's supposed to be good. 
They, they, they <laughs> right. go, ah, ah, we can right. find other things to do. But let me jump down to a couple of more here that may, I think he got a shot at. He may be dead, but he's the life of the party. Oh, a weekend at Bernie's? All right. Oh, All you right. are on the rise. Boom, You're headed boom. to the big, big money I here. I know, seriously, Uh-oh. right? Now, this could be mistaken for something else, but here's one that I like, just the way it's described. They have a plan, but not a clue. Oh, but that, that's so many of these movies. I know. I, I am blank. It blank. feels like a dumb and dumber thing, but it's not. Yeah. Oh, brother, where art thou? Oh, okay. That's a good one. Oh, right? brother, where art thou? But, you know, that applies to a lot of these type of films, really. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's good. But people then know, okay, something haphazard's going to be going down. The bank robbery's going to go yes, bad, yes. right? You know some kind of thing. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to reverse this on this one. Okay. I'm going to see if you might know <laughs> what Chicken Run, do you know what the tag on Chicken Run was? No, no. Okay. It's cute and it's comical. Escape or Die Frying. I remember that one because the Mel Gibson animation movie, right? Chicken Run. Yeah, yeah. I remember that, but I just forgot. I couldn't come to think of it. But that was a great tag. Escape or Die Frying. Yeah. I, no. no or I was thinking it could be, if you stay, you're plucked. Ah, there you go. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I love it. I love it. That's a good one, too. So here's one. She brought a small town to its feet and a corporation to its knees. Aaron Brockovich. Be off by one, yes. Woo, <laughs> right. I'm retiring on that one. There you go. <laughs> Let's go backwards in time. What was the first movie play or uh, something that you saw that made a big impact on you, that made you fall in love with this genre of storytelling? Oh, man, that is such a great question. And, and it's funny. And I don't remember. I said the first movie I saw as a kid was this, because there's a military draft requirement when, in Taiwan. So every male over age 18 has to serve, you know, in the military. But obviously I immigrated, so I, I escaped that. But I just remember, like, getting us ready to— Because we're under, milita- we're under martial law. I'm not sure if you knew, Pat. Taiwan was, for a long time, has the longest-running martial law government in history in the world. Oh. Until this other country beat it recently. And it was only lifted in the late 80s. So when we left, it was, it was during martial law. So obviously every kid is like military. So I think I remember seeing it. Was almost, it was almost like a police academy, but about the military recruits. It's like a slapstick okay. comedy. I just thought that was so funny because they always had some sort of super broad comedy about, you know, your, when you enlist, there's this kind of draft that you have to do. And then there's also some sort of heart always. It's about home and family and missing home and about rites of passage and coming of age. So I've always resonated with that. And I would say, the first two movies, I want to say I saw in the States, it wasn't the typical Razor Lost Ark people say, it wasn't Star Wars, but in the theaters, I remember seeing Top Gun <laughs> and Rain Man, like 85, 86, with very distinct mm-hmm. memories of seeing, so I was young, I was way below the R-rated age range, and I remember seeing it. And here's the thing. I, I wonder like, why we love certain movies. Obviously, it's a fantastical imagination. And I only realized this a few years ago, by the way. And I know it's so obvious. I wondered why I loved Rain Man so much. And I saw it as a kid in the theaters. And I, I remember resonating with it. A, these people don't look like me. I was still barely getting my English language down. And I saw that movie. What did I identify? How did I identify with this movie? Why did I feel so much for the movie? And that goes back to fear, I realized. Psychologically looking back, I'm obsessed with Rain Man. Like, I teach this, and I watch it. I love it. Because my dad lived, uh, and my immigration story was, I immigrated to the States with my three older siblings and only mm. my mom. My dad stayed behind in Taiwan to provide financial support. So the job was here. He couldn't really go. So I saw him only once a year. And I think the other fear was, I would never have gotten to know mm. my dad. And I think when I watched Rain Man, it was that fear of never knowing mm. my dad. I didn't put it together back then. I only really put it together a few years ago, really. Even after being so obsessed with the film, I'm going, why do I love this movie so much? And that's why. Uh, that's amazing. Well, we have to sign off, but I think yes. an important thing I'd really like to hear from you yeah. is a, a, maybe a piece of advice of how to respond to notes. Oh, right. Because you've been a working writer, playwright, screenwriter, director, and many of our creative listeners might be somebody who are defensive about a note or think it's ridiculous. I mean, it's a very important thing, I think, to to understand. You're going to suddenly turn your baby over to somebody and they're going to say, 
you have an ugly baby. Right, you know? right, right. I'll talk about two things real quick. One is attitude. I think the idea when you go into any collaborative medium, Pat, as you, you do in our art, in our world, is that it's a collaborative medium. So you have to approach everyone as like we're partners. It doesn't matter how young the executive, it doesn't matter how experienced executive is or producers or directors or actors that you're working with. I think to approach it like this is a partnership. So a partnership meaning everyone is in the best interest of the project that they're about to collaborate on. So when they give you feedback and notes, they're coming from a, you take the, what is the intention of the note? They may say something that's like, oh my, a solution that's not, that's so way off, that does not make sense, but try to identify why they're saying that note, right? What, what is the intention of the note? But never respond right off the cuff unless they're asking you a question about it. But I say, like, let me think about it. That's a, that's a really interesting point. And honestly, listen in, don't just dismiss it so quickly because sometimes I may hear no and I'm going, that's totally way off, what are you talking about? And I go home and I digest it and I'm so glad to respond in the heat of the moment. Be so, you know, not offensive creative, but like, you know, I've plotted this out, I've thought about this, this isn't just there just because, by going, they're right. I would say eight out of 10 times, they're right because there's something else that's wrong in the mechanics of it that's not coming across. So digest it, don't do it right in the moment. No matter how how much you feel it's wrong, the note, quote unquote. Yeah. Right. Sometimes the note is not necessarily appropriate, but it's indicating there's a problem around it. Absolutely. Sometimes if they have contradictory notes, if we're in a session with them, I always say, hey, do me a favor. Can you put those all down and shoot me an email so that your salient notes are there? And then when I'm able to look at them, sometimes I'm able to say to them, hey, number two and number seven are opposing each other. Which do you want? What do you really think, right? Sometimes you can go through them figuring out what they're trying to say. Um, well, great. I appreciate you sharing your knowledge. You, you're a great writer. You're an extraordinary teacher. Somewhere I heard teachers don't teach for the income. Teachers teach for the outcome. <laughs> right. There you go. Right. And I, I think that you're inspiring and impacting quite a few people with your work. I would encourage others to look up Waco Lynn find out more about his plays and his movies. It was a pleasure to talk to you today, pal. And I appreciate you getting up early while we're up late to have this global connection. Thank you so much, Pat. It's such an honor and pleasure being here. Thank you. Thanks for joining us today. Take a moment to subscribe and we will hold your seat for more creative conversation and a weekly spark of inspiration. Our show is produced by Sweetwood Creative under the skilled producership of Amanda Rosenberg with sound editing lovingly provided by Delilah Lovejoy. Our original music theme was written and sung by Maya Sharp, with additional production support and sanity provided by Casey Franco, Tony Deo, Tucker Hazel, and Diane Johansson. Please feel free to share your input or dash off a review on social media to help grow our creative community. You can find us on Instagram at Pat Hazel with two L's, or visit our website at creativityincaptivity.fun. You heard that right, it's dot .fun, because dot .com is just too dot .com. And dot fun is so much more fun. Ciao for now. Staring at an empty page, stepping on a ghostlit stage, a circus of uncertainty. You're called a creativity. La 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 la. La 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 la. La 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 la. La la la.